Now, one of our number here uh, who does the right thing and reads the passage before they come, just to give you a little hint as to what to do, next week, Psalm 85, not hard to remember, uh, said to me earlier in the week, in other words, yesterday, I wonder uh, how you're going to make a Bible study out of that psalm. It's a very strange psalm. And I must confess that I was wondering how I would too because I thought it was a strange psalm. It's not one that I knew. I knew one passage in it, that is, the one verse about I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. That, but that was it and I really found it different, difficult. I remember that I chose it because I actually, when I saw how difficult and strange it was, I thought to myself, why on earth did you put yourself down to speak on this psalm? It would have been a good week to say, Andrew, I think you should take this study. Uh, but why did I put myself down? Well, I remembered that I, re- I chose it because last week is Psalm 83 and next week Psalm 85. So that's why this week's Psalm 84, which is really a good way to study the Bible. Just to read your way through it. Because it means you're forced to study the bits that you're not interested in and that you're forced to deal with the strange bits that you want to jump over as being strange or difficult or odd. For Psalm 84 is strange to whom? You see, it wasn't strange to the psalmist. He wrote it. He understood it and believed it. And it wasn't strange to the Holy Spirit who inspired it. He knew what he was inspiring. So who's it strange to and why do they think it's strange? Well, it's strange to our ears, or at least my ears anyway, because it's not saying what I expect and because I don't understand it. When I read it, I finish the psalm and I think, what was that about? And I read it a second time and I think, I still don't know what that's about. So I read it again another time and I'm still not sure. If you ask me to summarise this psalm in a sentence, what is this psalm about? I'll read it again and try and work it out because I just don't seem to get on the wavelength of the psalmist, which tells us two things. The psalm is not strange, but the reader finds it strange. That's a different thing, isn't it, to say the psalm. You see, we blame the psalm when the problem is the reader, not the psalm. And then secondly, it says... I really need to read this psalm again and study it properly to find out what it's saying. And so, well done. Here you are, Psalm 84. Who would have guessed? However, one strange feature that is in the psalm is what I call the midstream plea in verses 8 and 9. O Lord of God hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. That does seem strange because it doesn't seem to connect with anything else in the psalm. Why is there this sudden reference to God's anointed? Was there some particular historical threat to God's anointed in the background that we don't know about? What has it got to do with the rest of the psalm of me dwelling in the house of the Lord, not being a tent keeper, not being in the house of the tents of evil? Well, Before looking at the psalm in any detail, let me remind you of some background that will help us in the reading of the psalm. First is the obvious background, that's so obvious we keep forgetting to mention it, that God himself is in the psalm and the psalm is about him. For in this psalm, the God we're speaking of is the Lord of hosts, verse 1 and verse 3. That is Yahweh, the Lord in uppercase. Uh, The word hosts means armies, which I don't know why they translated as hosts. 
um, mainly, I think, to avoid saying armies. Uh, we don't like armies, and so we tend to have the Lord of hosts. We don't know what hosts means, but it's accurate. It means armies. And then we don't have to know what it means. And it's always good when you don't know what something unpleasant means, isn't it? I mean, it's a daft translation, but nearly all the, arm, nearly all the translations do it. It's a way of saying that God is mighty and powerful. He has all the armies at his disposal. This is the living God, verse 2. Not dead like an idol, but alive and life-giving is Yahweh. And so in verse 3, he is my king, my God. The one who hears our prayers in verse 8. Our sun and our shield in verse 11. Our sun bringing us warmth and light. Our shield bringing us protection and shelter. Secondly, he is the God who dwells in Zion. Now Zion was the hill upon which Jerusalem was built. You know how Sydney Harbour can be called Sydney Harbour, but it could also be called Port Jackson. Well, Jerusalem can be called Jerusalem, but Jerusalem also can be called Zion because Sydney Harbour is Port Jackson and Jerusalem is Zion. It's the same thing and it's easier to spell. It's only got four letters. Zion is the hill upon which which Jerusalem is built and the pinnacle of it really is the temple. So Zion is a way of talking about the temple or Jerusalem Both either. Zion then became the name for God's city, for God's temple, the very place where God himself, who lives everywhere, lives in this world. It was the holy place, the place where God's ark and his temple resided, the place where every Israelite came to sacrifice, to pray to God, to meet with God. If you want to meet God in this world, in the ancient world... Go to Jerusalem, go to Zion, go to the temple on the top of the hill of Zion. So thirdly, we need to remember how Zion stood for the temple, the courts, the house of Yahweh. It was the temple, the holy place where God met man, where you could enter into his presence, though with difficulty and a distance. It was a large, imposing building or really series of buildings, series of courts, uh, kind of like our square around about us. That was part of the kind of temple experience. It wasn't just the building in the middle, it was the courts that went around the building and there were a series of courts that went around the building and it was huge. And as you approached the building, the courts, you could enter in to the outer court, the Gentiles could come, then the women, then the men, then the priestly line of Levi, then gradually as you got into the centre, only into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could come and he could only come once a year on the Day of Atonement and only after he had celebrated a whole list of elaborate rituals dealing with sin and impurity. So the closer you got into God, temple God's holy of holies the harder it was to get in it was the place where you met God at a distance at the same time these courtyards of the temple were also courts in our modern sense of the word for the reason you couldn't approach God any further was because it was a matter of justice your sin and God's righteous anger with sin had to be dealt with which is why you couldn't come into his presence 
without death. Your death or the death of the sacrificial animal in your place. Yet the whole complex was the house and the home of the Lord of Yahweh. Yahweh who created the universe and as Isaiah prophesied, the earth was but his footstool, he didn't need a house to live in. But yet he chose to live in Jerusalem. Not that he actually could ever fit into the temple in Jerusalem. But yet that's where he put his name. That's where he was willing to meet people. He had travelled with them in the Exodus when they came out of Egypt and went to the Promised Land. They were all travelling in tents and they set up a special tent in the middle. The word tabernacle just means tent. And that was his tent when they became established in the land of Jerusalem under David and then particularly under Solomon. Jerusalem under David had been set as the city of God and the tabernacle was set up there. But as everybody else was living in houses, David decided that a a temple should be built. And in Solomon's day, that temple was built. And so here, the temple in Jerusalem made Jerusalem the central capital city of Israel. It was the place where symbolically God lived. This meant, fourthly, that the Israelite was obliged to make pilgrimage. Pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, to offer up sacrifices, in particular the Passover sacrifice and the atonement sacrifice. So, for example, we find Joseph and Mary taking Jesus to the temple for his dedication in Luke chapter 2, when he was just a baby. And after they'd finished the purification, the dedication in the temple, they returned to Galilee. That is a long distance away from Jerusalem. We also read in Luke chapter 2, when he was 12, he went up to the temple and confounded the rabbis and the teachers and the priests who were in the temple. But what we read in Luke 2 is, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the festival of the Passover. This was normal for a pious family, a normal pattern of life for those who were the true believers in Israel. For Zion, the temple, the city, lay at the centre of the Jewish relationship with God. And so every year you would go up in pilgrimage to the temple. Uh, We're talking of a week or two's trip by road, by foot, that we're talking of. It was a major expedition that you went up to Jerusalem. But in the psalm there is this fifth bit of background which seems strange, the reference in verse 9 to your anointed. The anointed were the prophets, the priests, the kings, in particular the kings. It was a sign of God's spiritual appointment of somebody that they were anointed with oil. Uh, The word for anointed, the Hebrew word is Messiah and the Greek word is Christ. And so the anointed is the Messiah, is the Christ. Every king of Israel was the Messiah. Every king of Israel was the Christ because they were all anointed to be the king of Israel. Yet from the time of David, 1000 BC, they were looking forward to not simply another king. They were looking forward to the king, not just another Messiah, but the Messiah, the Christ who would fulfill the promises to David 
and establish the kingdom, not just over Israel, but over all nations. Not just for his lifetime, but for all time. Well, enough of background. Let's look at the psalm and work our way through this. As you can see from the outline, I've divided it up into four sections, three of which have a blessing, and the other is this midstream plea. The first blessing in verses 1 to 4 is the blessing of dwelling with God. You see the blessing in verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. And this is a wonderful opening to the psalm. How lovely is God's dwelling place. Uh, Not the building itself, although that was a lovely, spectacular building, but to dwell with God is lovely. The sparrow, the swallow, they are dwelling with God in God's house, singing and chirping his praises, though they do not know it and understand it. And the psalmist would just like to be one of them, perched somehow inside the house of God, to be able to be with God. But the psalmist, you'll see in verse 2, is not there. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. He's not there. He would like to be there, but he longs to be there. He just wishes that he could be one of the blessed, like the birds, who could make their dwelling in the dwelling of God and sing his praises. The second blessing is the blessing of pilgrimage in verses 5 to 7. They find their strength in God in the highway of life. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways. Two Zions been added in by our translator, as you can see from footnote 3. Now, it's hard to know in these verses whether he's talking of the literal pilgrimage to Jerusalem or he's using the pilgrimage to Jerusalem as a metaphor for life. Our life is walking towards God, is heading towards Zion, is that is the nature of life. Both, of course, are true. Both can be true. As they went up to Jerusalem physically, they were participating in life's journey towards God. You see, we don't know of any valley called the Valley of Baca in verse 6. The word Baca is a word that refers to a tree or a shrub, uh, a kind of mean tree or shrub that can grow in very dry countryside. And so it's, a, it's the, the root of the word baka means uh, weeping or affliction. And so the concept is going through the hard time. As they go through the valley of tears, the valley of, of difficulties, the valley of afflictions, the valley of baka, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers its pools, covers it with pools. That is, as the pilgrims on their journey, come through the hard and dry places, they make the place moist and pleasant. Springs of life come. That is, the pilgrims who walk in the strength of the Lord, verse 5, actually enrich the countryside through which they walk. And God blesses them by sending rain so that that place which you would say is dry and hard and backer actually is covered with pools, partly because they bring its blessing, partly because God brings blessing. 
That is, the pilgrims as they journey make the hard, dry place moist and pleasant and God bestows his favour on them in rain. So as they travel, they go from strength to strength, verse 7. As each one appears before God in Zion, Zion is there, there, that verse 7, which is why they put it back in verse 5. As they head and arrive at Zion, they've just gone from strength to strength. That is, you'd expect the pilgrims to get weaker and weaker as they go. But because they go in the strength of the Lord, they actually get stronger and stronger as they go. God blesses them in their pilgrimage towards Zion so that they go from strength to strength, from glory to glory. That is, verses 6 and 7 are explaining verse 5 for us. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways. They're the blessed. So blessed are those who are living in the house of the Lord. What a blessing that would be to actually dwell in God's house. And blessed are those who are in the pilgrimage to the house of the Lord because God strengthens and enables them to get there. Then suddenly there's this change with a plea for Christ. Verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of of your anointed. He's no longer talking about them, those who are in pilgrimage. He's no longer, in a sense, talking about himself, but he is appealing to God to hear his own prayer. Hear my prayer. And his prayer is not for himself. His prayer is for the anointed, though the anointed is his shield. He could have been the anointed praying for God's help himself. Maybe he is the anointed. You could read it that way, couldn't you? O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God, to Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. But it's unlikely, especially as it's a psalm of the sons of Korah, back there at the top of the psalm. The black bits in the Bible, my song longs for the courts of the Lord. That's been added by the publisher. That's not part of the Hebrew text. But the next little bit, in uppercase, that's part of the Hebrew text. And so this is a song of Korah. It's not a song of David. And so it's not likely to be the Messiah himself. It could have been the Messiah was in some particular difficulty at this time that he's saying it. Though there's no historical reference in it to tell us when that would be. And anyway, when you read through the Psalms, the Messiah is nearly always in difficulty. So there's nothing new in that. David's life was a life full of difficulty and that's what he expects as the Christ himself expected when he read the Psalms. So we don't know why he's praying particularly for the Messiah at this point, but he does. So then we return to the fourth section, which is back to another blessing. Down verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. It kind of combines the first two blessings the blessing of being in the house of the Lord and the blessing of God's protection and provisions for us. So good is it to be in the house of the Lord that I'd prefer to be a servant at the door of the house than to live in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord will not deny us any good thing. He won't deny that to anybody who trusts him and walks uprightly in his way. This reminds me of other Psalms because it's so much the theme of the Psalms. Come back to Psalm 15, Psalm 15, page 539, but it's the same book, you're in the book of Psalms, you just turn back till you find Psalm 15. Uh, 
Psalm 15. Because it asks the question as to who could live in the tent of the Lord. Psalm 15, it's a psalm of David, this one. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And the answer comes, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart, who doesn't slander his tongue and doesn't know evil to his neighbour, nor does he uh, take up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honours those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and doesn't change, who doesn't put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, He who does these things shall never be moved. So here in our Psalm 84, you see, no good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly, the one who trusts in God. And so it also reminds me of the very opening Psalm, Psalm 1, if you just turn back there, page 533, Psalm 1. The opening of the whole book and the theme of the book, in a sense, is blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither in all that he does. He prospers. God will not hold back any good thing from his people. For the man of God is blessed. And he's blessed in his doing as he doesn't hang around with the wicked, but dwells in the life of the Lord, in his law, in his temple. So what are the psalmist's lessons for us? First and foremost, there are the lessons of values. That is, the value of being in God's house, the value of longing to live with God. The contrasting values of verse 10. Better a day in the court of God than a thousand elsewhere. Better to be a servant than a master if you're a servant in God's house compared to a master in wickedness. Here's true godliness, to want to be with God. Here's the true love of God, to want to dwell with him. And find not fascination, joy or pleasure in the company of the evil. It's one of those things we know is true and yet we keep on being so tempted to play with evil. To be fascinated with what is wrong. In the book of Philippians we read, Finally brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I always find that makes reading the newspaper difficult. I find viewing much of what we call entertainment on television and the films difficult. I find much of my own internal thought world difficult. Philippians 4 is one of those lovely verses that I find very difficult. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, think about these things. I'd rather dwell in the courts of the Lord as a servant than to be in the courts of the wicked, in the tents of the wicked. But where's my head? It's not just the thought world, it's the real world. 
success in this world that would give me a comfortable seat amongst the wicked is not worth having compared to being in the courts of the Lord. Second, the struggles of this world's pilgrimages. You see, we go from one degree of glory to the next as we turn to the Lord in 2 Corinthians 3 and as we find our strength in him. So verses 5 to 7, it reminds me of the end of Isaiah 40, how God gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The Christian life is a long distance marathon race. For some of us who became Christians early in life, as I did as a 14 year old, it's a long, long term race. How can you finish the long term marathon of life? And the answer is very simple by the strength of the Lord. That is the only way. But by the strength of the Lord, you don't just struggle through. By the strength of the Lord, you grow in strength. From strength to strength, from glory to glory, as you have your confidence in him, which is therefore the third thing to learn, that there's nothing good that he will deny us. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Ask, said Jesus, ask and it'll be given to you. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask of him? God is more willing to give than we are to ask. But he will enable us and strengthen us and make sure that no temptation comes our way that is beyond our ability to withstand. But still in the middle of this psalm is the plea for the Christ. For there is an ultimate answer to those in the world, to those away from Jerusalem and longing to be in the courts of God. The ultimate answer is the Messiah, the Christ, the shield, the true protector from all harm, the one who will care and provide for us and shield us from all harm, even shield us from the wrath of God. Interesting, elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's God who is the shield of his people. Even here in verse 11, God is called the sun and the shield. But here it is the Messiah who is our shield, whom we want God to look upon with favour to protect us under our shield. And when the Messiah came, he came to Zion. He came to this temple and he spoke of two things. It's destruction and it's reconstruction. It's destruction by the Romans to never be rebuilt again. But a wailing wall is all that's left. It's reconstruction in three days. Speaking of his resurrection. Speaking of the temple of his body. For having opened the way into the Holy of Holies by his sacrifice, all who come in the name of Jesus can now enter into the very presence of God. He became for us the temple of God, the place where we meet God and more. He pours his Holy Spirit into us so that we, yes, you and me, we can become the temple of God. For God never lived in a building in Jerusalem. He never lived in Jerusalem. God lives 
in the hearts of his people. And so we see right at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, with which I conclude and ask you to join with me in looking it up, right at the end of the Bible, page 1239, a picture of the heavenly city. And we see something strange about the temple in the heavenly city and about the sun. I read to you from verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle, the tent, the the temple, the dwelling place uh, of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Go across the page to verse 22, verse 22 at the end of the chapter where he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring it into it the glory and the honour of the nations but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what the psalmist was looking forward to. That true temple of God of which Zion and Jerusalem were but a symbol. And our walk towards Zion and Jerusalem, that's just a symbol of the true walk into the presence of God, which we have ultimately when the Lord Jesus Christ returns.